The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 184 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier, and it is so good to be back with you. Uh, Again, I'm so sorry we didn't have an episode last week. I was so sick. That cold was just horrible, but I'm feeling much better now and had a wonderful weekend with conference, and I'm so glad to be back with you. Uh, Before we get into this week's amazing episode, I do want to thank a new reviewer, and that is on Apple Podcast. The username is Nellie Nelson who says, uh, amazing and informative is the title of her review, says these podcasts are absolutely amazing. I look forward to each episode and left us a nice five-star review. Thank you so much, Nelly. We really appreciate it. These reviews just help us grow and help other people find the show. So thank you so much. Uh, And then also, uh, we have a favor to ask from our listeners. And this comes from uh, Skylar Fleming, who we, uh, he had his own episode a few weeks ago. You know, he does our social media. He has done amazing things. And if you're not following us on Facebook and Instagram, man, you're missing out. He has put out some just great content. I loved it all through conference. He kept posting different questions. And thank you so much to all of you who jumped in and answered. And one of the things he posted was uh, asking the question we ask all our guests. He asked our listeners, which I just love, and that was, uh, what does being a member of the church mean to you? And I'm sure many of you have thought of your own answer to that question, Uh, but we would love to have you share your answer, and we'd love to share it on social media. And so you can either message us on Facebook or on Instagram, and uh, you can do that, or you can email it over to social at latterdaylives.com. And please only send it to us if we're okay to share it. Uh, But we would love to share that on our social media, because we've gotten some beautiful answers from listeners. And uh, what a blessing you all are. We love our listeners. So again, you can send us a direct message on uh, Instagram or on Facebook, or email us to social at latterdaylives.com, and we would love to share what being a member of the church means to you. Okay, for this week's episode, our guest is just a legendary broadcaster, Doug Wright. If you live in Utah or anywhere in the Intermountain West, you know Doug Wright. He has been just, when I say he's an icon and a legend, I don't know how it gets much bigger in broadcasting than Doug Wright. And what a blessing. Uh, Gene did such a great job getting this lined up for us. I was just so excited about it uh, for days before we recorded. And then once we actually met online to record, just hearing his voice again, uh, he is just amazing. And, you know, sometimes when we have longer episodes, I'll kind of uh, edit it down for time. Uh, I didn't want to take anything out of this, and so we we left all the content because I think Doug's story is just amazing, and I have been obviously a fan of his for a long time. It was a little bit intimidating when you're interviewing somebody who is that 
legendary in broadcasting, and that's what he does, is interview people. (laughs) Uh, He's just so incredible, but uh, what a blessing it was to get to meet with him. And coming up this week in my Latter-day Life, what is going on in the vineyard? It's all coming up, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, it is my absolute honor to have an icon in the broadcasting industry here in Utah. If you are a Utah resident and have been for more than a few years, you know my guest very well, Doug Wright. Welcome to the program. Thank you. And I'm relieved you didn't use the term relic or artifact. (laughs) Icon's a little (laughs) less accurate, but I appreciate it. Oh, there is no question you are iconic. In fact, I've told a couple of my friends that uh, we were doing this interview tonight and both of them were like, what? Doug Wright? <laughs> you are you are a very beloved persona and person here in Utah. And uh, we're going to get into all your years of KSL and the movie show and the Doug Wright show and everything else. But first of all, we got to get to know you a little bit. Tell us uh, where you're from, where you grew up. Born and raised in Salt Lake. A lot of people think it was Eureka. And I just uh, inflicted myself on that poor little town back in 1974. Just, I've always loved Utah mining history and I loved Eureka when I discovered it. And so I am not from Eureka. I am from Salt Lake City, born and raised, uh, born in Holy Cross Hospital. And my uncle Les developed, uh, <laughs> he, he actually delivered me. And I heard also that my mother was present. So that was good. <laughs> That's awesome. Were you born into the church? Yes, uh-huh. I was, as a matter of fact. Yeah. How many siblings? Uh, I am the one and only of my mother and father. However, I have five uh, half-brothers and sisters that I am aware of. <laughs> <laughs> now that's intriguing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, now I'm fascinated. I kind of want to know how that all came together. Yeah, well, my mother and father met on their mission. They were in the Texas-Louisiana mission, and uh, my mother spent time in Dallas and in San Antonio, where she met my father. And when they came home, uh, he was from Tooele. My mother was uh, in the old Forestdale area of Salt Lake. And they got married, and uh, shortly thereafter, I was born. But before I had any memories of my father at all in the home, they were divorced. Mm. And so my father uh, married multiple times. And so I, I only really was close with two of my uh, siblings, Carl and Ted. And then the other family uh, was up in Idaho. And that's Susan, Jimmy, and Kenny. And of those, I've only met one. So, Oh, really? Yeah. What an interesting background. So growing up, did you live primarily with your mom? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Single mom all the way. As a matter of fact, I've told this story before. I was asked by Covenant if I would uh, write. Uh, well, first of all, they, they asked if I would write something in the book called Fathers of Faith. And I said, well... If you let me write something about my grandfather, I'll be glad to. And uh, Gary Toyn was very kind and said, oh, of course. And then a year or so later, they did Mothers of Faith. And I wrote about my mother in that book. 
And uh, in my first grade class, I'll never forget this because it was really uncommon to uh, be raised in a single family back then, especially in the neighborhood that I was uh, in. Sure. And Mrs. Smith had us all in a circle and we, everybody kid went around and she said, uh, tell us what your father does for a living, which was a perfectly appropriate question, you know, in, in the sure. late, you know, like 1957 <laughs> or eight or whatever it was. And so I was the one kid uh, when they came around to me who uh, told everybody what my mother did, and she was a teacher. And uh, Mrs. Smith was surprised, but also very pleased that my mother was a teacher. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, I know the bond that I have with my mother and that my wife has with our children, but I can only imagine only child with single mom. The reliance, the bond that that must have created and how much that must have guided your life. Absolutely. Uh, and my mother is, is a real hero. Uh, she, she did not have an easy time of it. Uh, you know, being single within the church, divorced, and within any community, not just the, the church. But it, it was unusual, and it was tough on my mom, and she had a difficult time of it. Uh, you know, you were raised in an environment where the celestial marriage means everything. They were married in the temple. and Yeah. Where it, and and t- friends, you know, well, you know, Lois, if you'd just done this or you know, I uh, don't know. you know, it it was a different time in a different place. But Helen Reddy had a song, "You and Me Against the World," and that always <laughs> reminded me of my mom and me. When, whenever I'd hear that song, even now, still, uh, I it just seemed like my mom and and me, kind of not against the world, but just functioning in the world. Yeah, you knew you had each other. That is yeah. so awesome. Yeah. And and I believe and hope and actually I know we've gotten better as a at a church as a church community. But uh, I'm a little bit younger, but uh I, even <laughs> when when I was a kid, I still yeah. remember there was still a lot of that sort of that that stigma and whatnot. And I I think yeah. we do a better job now. But yeah, what a beautiful relationship. Right. I think that's Yeah, it's beautiful. great and 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 you know, I've I've joked about this on the air and everything else, but remember when Hillary Clinton wrote the book uh, "It Takes a Village"? Yeah. And oh my goodness, you know, so <laughs> many conservatives just went crazy. But if if Laura Bush or Barbara Bush or somebody had uh, written, you know, "It Takes a Village," it would have been fine. Yeah. But for me, for me, it really did take a village. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, my my grandparents on my maternal side were uh, just amazing. And mm. my grandfather, Eugene Love, uh, was just, huh, man, he died when I was 17. And it was, I think it was harder almost than, than losing a, a traditional father because he was such an important part. Boy, he represented absolute unconditional love. Mm. And ants and everybody, uh, you know, just played such a part. And then, of course, great people within our community uh, LDS and not uh, played a, a major role in raising me some scoutmasters and bishops. I don't know where I'd be today without them. Oh, I love that. Yeah, you wonder if it had been written by somebody and it was called It Takes a Ward. Yeah. People would have really mo- maybe embraced it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What were you into growing up? What were your hobbies and, and your passions? Oh, I've always loved to collect things, always, ever, even when I was a little kid. I've been a lifelong numismatist, which is a fancy name for coin collector. 
I'm glad you didn't make me ask because I yeah. had no idea. I've never well, heard if, of that. If I told you I was a philatelist, then I'd have to tell you that I collected stamps. Yeah. I do a little bit. But I started collecting uh, coins, and I'll never forget my grandmother really fed that uh, by going to her cupboard because whenever she would, you know, there, when she was doing laundry and grandpa had left a couple of pennies or a dime in, in the pockets or she was vacuuming, you know, having a penny go through the old Hoover. Do you remember what that sounded like back yeah. in the old days? <laughs> sure. But she uh, let me go through that, uh, that famed jar and work on my penny uh, collection, which helped me in scouting too, by the way. And that's been a lifelong addiction. But I loved that when I was a kid. I was really good at cutting lawns because of my Uncle Frank. Uh, my grandmother's um, brother was the uh, head gardener at Jordan Park mm. and was responsible for some of those beautiful flower beds that were just famous in the 1940s and 1950s and so on. But I cut his lawn, and boy, let me tell you, if you <laughs> you you didn't get close to his razor-cut edges, he would do that with sheep shears, and he would not allow a rotary mower. It had to be a real motor because one whacked off and the other cut the grass. So I cut the grass both ways, and you know, so yeah, I was quite the. I I cut my aunt Afton's uh, lawn. I cut my grandma's lawn. I cut my uncle Frank's lawn. The last to get cut, of course, was my mom's. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I have kids. I I know how that yeah. goes. <laughs> so when you were younger, did you recognize your gift for being able to have like ease of conversation with people? No. I was a problem child in school. Uh, not that I was a bad kid, but uh, I, I like to work. I've always liked to work. And I was fortunate. I worked in a little grocery store when I was 15 with some friends. It was called Nigrin's Market. It was on 9th East and uh, 27th South. And I, there was something about you know, the, the majesty of work <laughs> versus the majesty of school, honestly, that kind of uh, really caught my attention. And I just really liked to work. And then, so by the time I was in late junior high and early high school, boy, you know, trying to get me to go to school was really tough. Getting me to go to work was not hard at all. So when I, when I say I was a problem child, it wasn't that I was out doing anything wrong. I just loved working more than I loved going <laughs> to school. And going to school, I had some magnificent teachers. I really did. Mm. As a matter of fact, uh, one of my favorite teachers ever was Ann Maxwell. And uh, that was uh, Elder Maxwell's sister. And I had her in her very first year of teaching after she had just come back from New York. And she was amazing. She drove a Model A Ford. I mean, it was. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and that was even unusual then. And <laughs> she was just wonderful. I had some truly wonderful teachers. So if there's any fault in my education, it wasn't my teachers, it was me. That is phenomenal. How cool. Well, so it must have for your mom, seeing you struggle to go to school rather than work. And here you've got a mother who's teaching. Oh, that, that must have been a little bit of a struggle. I'm sure that did she maybe kind of want a scholar? Oh, well, she she just wanted a kid to go to school. <laughs> it was a little mortifying, you know, honestly. And oh, it was so hard for her as a single parent. And, of course. Uh, you know, when, when she first started teaching, 
she went to both BYU and the University of Utah, mm-hmm. ultimately got her teaching degree. I, I, I've still got a picture of her when she finally graduated. And awesome. I, I, I was just, even at that age, we lived in a little tiny house behind a house. It's about the size of a double a garage. And uh, I, I just remember her working so hard to get that degree. She didn't drive. So she carpooled, she took buses and everything else. She finally got her, uh, her driver's license, I think in 1958. And I can remember the, the guy from Petty Ford there on 21st South and 9th East driving down. I remember I was, I thought it was the coolest car in the world because it had two steering wheels and two brakes. What? Yeah. Yeah. The, the instructor had a steering wheel on the right hand side. And so when my mother sat on the <laughs> oh, other side. Oh, right. For the, for the driving practice. Yes. But, you know, being a single mom and, and those years, especially, you know, they, they were really tough. And, uh, yeah. and then, you know, when, when I became a teenager, her challenges just greatly multiplied. Uh, and, you know, I, I remember my poor grandmother, when I finally ended up at Granite High School, I should have been at Skyline High School, but, you know, problem children, we get shuffled around a little bit, seeing if something magic would happen. I remember my grandma, she was she was so old school, she'd go, Doug, if you'll just go to school, I'll pay you a dollar a day. <laughs> I remember at the time, I was kind of tempted, actually, but I, I was still enamored with radio. So, yeah, uh, it, was, it was hard on my mom. It was hard on the family. Yeah, and you you just mentioned you were enamored with radio. Was radio an, an early love for you? Yeah, very early love for me. I when I was a kid, there was I, I was that geeky kid who would sit there. It was a it was a Stromberg Carlson big, you know, sit on the top of a table radio where you lift up the lid and the phonograph was in there. Sure, but at, but at nighttime, those old analog tube radios—I mean—they would pick up signals and the mellow tone. And I'd be sitting there dialing through, and you'd pick up KOB in Al- Albuquerque. You'd pick up some other signal, you know, WCCO or something back in the Midwest. And I just radio was magic to me. And then when I got to be a teenager and really enjoyed listening to KNAK. That was the station at the time. I just, I, I remember thinking to myself, and I told some friends who looked at me like, yeah, right. I said, I would love to be on the radio. I would love <laughs> to, you know. And I remember actually thinking, if I could just be on the radio once, wow, you know. <laughs> that is just awesome. Yeah, that so was you, a long, arduous path. Yeah, well, so... Did you ever have opportunities at all while you were in your high school years? Yeah, it it was mostly again because I was a problem child, and the uh, I've I've told this story before, but I, I was I was a mite rebellious, and I was growing a mustache, <laughs> and uh, uh, I remember Mister Jones at Skyline High School said, "Right, stand up." So this is a math class. This wasn't gym. And so I stood up and he goes, that mustache will be gone tomorrow. And I said, no, sir. Well, <laughs> yeah, I said, no. And he said, Mr. Magleby's office. So he was the, uh, the counselor for the camera of a sophomore junior. So I went down there and Mr. Magleby gave me the, uh, what are you going to do when you grow up boy speech? And I just blurted out that I wanted to be in radio. And ironically, 
here's here you know talk about you know, <laughs> just the luck a counselor in the granite school district was bob simmons bob simmons did the morning show on ksl and through a i won't go into all the details but through a roundabout way i uh, i was introduced to bob simmons and he let me come down to ksl and I'd have to be there at the crack of dawn. So again, it wasn't that I was, you know, derelict or something. I just didn't necessarily want to go to school. So I'd get up at the crack of dawn and I'd go down Social Hall Avenue and I'd sit in with Bob Simmons. He must have either saw me as so pathetic or maybe saw a little <laughs> bit of, of something. And so he introduced me to people, you know, Tommy T over at KCPX and but the, the most important introduction he ever made to me was uh, Dr. Rex Campbell up at the University of Utah. Mm. So I was still in high school, or should have been, and uh, I, I got an indulgence, as it were, to actually work at KUER at the University of Utah, making no money. It was all volunteer, but it was great experience, and I was 16 years old. So That is amazing. Isn't that crazy how things happen? So at 16, what kind of work were you doing then? Oh, you know, nothing uh, uh, profound. They would, uh, at the time, it was all tape and, and records. And I'd, I might do a station ID. You know, this is, you know, 90.1 FM, KUER, University of Utah, broadcasting from the basement of Kingsbury Hall. And <laughs> uh, But other than that, it was pretty much just running tapes and playing uh, records and it was all prescribed, you know, you did exactly, and, you know, you were lucky if you were able to do a station ID. And then occasionally they'd get really hard up, and I'd blunder my way through a newscast. But it, it was an amazing experience. Do you still remember your first actual newscast, like your first time? It wasn't just a station ID. It was Doug, right? I remember being scared to death. Yeah, I do. I can't remember what I reported on or anything. However, uh, <laughs> not Long thereafter, I do remember there was a great guy again at KSL. His name was Joe Meyer, who kind of took pity on a lot of young people getting into radio. And this was a little later on when I was at KCPX. And I remember one night, I've never, I, you know, I joke about being Utah's Mr. Sports. The reason I joke about that is because, yeah, I appreciate sports and I like sports, but I, you know, I'm, I'm just not into it. I mean, I, I think of, you know, sitting and watching five ball games on a weekend and I go, do you know how many books I could read? <laughs> you, know, do you know, I could go out and paint the house, you know. I could mow a lawn. <laughs> but anyway, I was giving a, a sports <laughs> and I was talking about the great player Johnny Uintas. And so I get a phone call from Joe Meyer <laughs> and Joe goes, Doug, <laughs> it's Johnny Unitas. <laughs> The great cult, Johnny yeah, Uintas. So I went, so, you know, when I first started uh, to work for KSL. Oh, that's they, a they, great story. They quickly recognized my deficiency <laughs> in sports and they assigned me a tutor. Uh, Chris Tunis at the time was, oh, supposed, yeah, sure. was supposed to bring me up to speed. And Chris, he was amazing. He was mm -hmm. encyclopedic, uh, just incredible. I, lo I loved Chris. 
but you know, he, he was trying so hard. And finally, I just really, he realized, I realized. So I started calling myself Utah's Mr. Sports and just made what was a fact into a bit that I really didn't know a whole lot about sports. Uh, Doug, so. I, for the rest of my life, every time Johnny Unitas's name comes in, <laughs> I, I will Uintas. see him as Johnny Uintas. That you know, is and, I, and I was, and I was sight reading, you know, I mean, you know, when yeah. I, when you're a case, when you're a rock and roll disc jockey, you just go in and rip it off the wire, those old tickers that we used to have. Well, and out of fairness to you, because we do have listeners around the world, the yes. Uintas is a mountain range in Utah. It's a you mountain didn't, range. You didn't and just make up a name. That's right. And when you just <laughs> quickly see that in the, the print sure. that you've never seen before, <laughs> so uh, I, just, I just saw it as Uintas. So, I and, love it. That yeah. is just fantastic. So you get done with high school. Uh, what came next? Well, I guess there has to be a full disclosure here. I was t- I was two years late getting done with high school. And mm. while I started at Skyline, ended up at Granite, but ultimately my diploma uh, says the Granite Evening School. And <laughs> <laughs> I love so, it. Yeah, it's very prestigious. It's a very presti- prestigious uh, diploma. But again, even there, I had some great, great teachers. And I am embarrassed to this day that I can't remember her name. But she really got me really interested in politics. And in 1972, when I ultimately graduated, uh, the, the presidential election was underway, McGovern and Nixon. And I was, you know, I was determined I was going to vote for George McGovern. And so I wrote art, you know, papers on him and everything else and read books and the whole deal. And like many people do when they're considering voting. By the time I actually got in the voting booth in 1972, uh, my hand started to quiver and I voted for Richard Nixon. And, <laughs> <laughs> but the things I, I got there, just uh, uh, amazing people. But it, by that time, I was already working full-time in radio. In so 1972, where were you then? I was a KRSP then. My first commercial station was KDYL out in Tooele, a little one kilowatt day- daytime station. And when I when I went out there, you know, when you when you're 16 years old and you're just kind of you know full of yourself, you just can't understand why people aren't knocking down the doors to hire you, and nobody was. And so I drove all the way out to Tooele, and again, that's where my dad's family's from. And I went up these creepy old stairs at Tiny Tim's Hobby House on the corner of, of uh, Vine Street and Main Street in Tooele. And I walked in, and this guy uh, by the name of Don was there, and nobody else was in the whole place, which isn't unusual for a small radio station like that. But I told him I wanted a job. He hired me on the spot because I guess everybody had uh, quit the day before because they had not been paid. So see, you know, opportunities come in such uh, amazing ways. But even that was, was an amazing experience. I, I got to do everything. I, I found out how you clean toilets and how you change the uh, water bottle, you know, that you have there in all foyers and vacuuming. I was really good at that. And even a little bit of uh, radio stuff. So this split attention between school and uh, work in radio. <laughs> yeah. How did your mom feel about all this? Oh, you know, uh, my grandmother was so happy when I finally graduated from Granite High School. <laughs> my grandma was not an emotional person. She uh, comes from Swiss-German uh, uh, descent, and, and 
ancestry and, and she but she she was about as close to dancing or crying as I've ever seen anybody. And my mother, I think it was just a big, big relief. My grandfather by then had had passed away. But it was a, a miraculous event. I, it was celebrated like something from on high that Doug actually graduated. That is just awesome. Yeah. So you make your way from Tooele mm-hmm. uh, over to your second station. and Yeah, I, I put out feelers all over. And by this time, I was 17. And I applied at KSOP, a great country station. And I applied at a brand new rock and roll station, KRSB. And both of them hired me part time. And Mm. I asked if I could, you know, get permission to do both since they were non-competing stations. If it had been KNAK or KCPX, the answer would have been no. But they did. They they let me. So I took two part-time jobs, one at KRSP and one at KS, uh, KSOP. And then very soon, within months, they both offered me full-time jobs. And because I was – I've since become a huge country music fan. But at the time, it was rock and roll or bust. And so <laughs> I went with the station that was playing rock and roll. And that was KRSP. At that time, it was groovy, groovy, groovy KRSP, the Rock of Salt Lake. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you have such an amazing tenor for, you know this, for radio. Your your voice, you, just your timbre is incredible. Did you have that when you were younger or did that develop over time? No, I actually think I, I handicapped myself because I figured you had to have a, a big voice, a deep. So I'd force it. For years, my voice cracked. Because I think I, I actually did damage trying to sound older than I was. or <laughs> so, well, I don't know what it was. But I'd be going along and, you know, it'd just be, I'd just, oh, in the most embarrassing times and places. and But, yeah, it, it ended up settling down eventually. When did you make the transition then from, I, see, and this will show my age, what I consider FM radio versus mm-hmm. AM radio, yeah. uh, you know, more of the, the music format versus the talk format? Yeah, everything was music back in the day. Uh, every station I worked for, you know, the primary thing was to play music. And if you wanted to be successful in the ratings, you played more music. Willie Waldron at KCPX, uh, that's where I worked after KRSP. Uh, he, he had a formula. He said, you play more music, you mix in a good mix of oldies, and you give away money. <laughs> that was the formula for, for – and Wooly won with that format when he was at KNAK and at KCPX. But then, the, there were, then FM started coming on at that time because in, in the old days, I, I used to joke that only the long-haired freaks – listen to FM, either long-haired hippie freaks listen to the obscure FM stations or the long-haired classical folks listened, mm. like up at KUER at the University of Utah. Sure. <laughs> but boy, there, there was a real transition, and I, I'm really grateful that I had the chance, especially at KCPX. I was there from 75, uh, 74 to 78, and those were the last heydays of rock and roll. And KCPX was owned by Columbia Pictures, and it was the hottest radio station between Denver and the coast. There was it, it was really a fun place to work. But then I was lured away to KSL in 1978. 
78 you went to KSL. Yeah. All right. And we so- were music at the time. KSL was primarily music. They did you know a lot of sports. They did a little talk at night. Uh, you know, things like that, the CBS Mystery Theater and so on, a lot of news. But it was still primarily music. Fascinating. I mean, that is that is just amazing. And I think we need to set the stage a little bit, 1978, because uh, we do have some younger listeners. <laughs> I don't think I can overstate the role of radio in America in 1978. Oh, yeah. I mean, radio was everything. You took your radio everywhere. <laughs> You know, you you listen to it in your car, you listen to it in your home, in your yard, and, you know, you went to the beach, you took your radio, like everywhere. You took a radio everywhere you went. And in fact, I remember getting a Walkman and being so excited because it had the double tuner in it so I could actually pick up stations on my Walkman because radio was everything. It was actually Senator Frank Moss out of Utah and several other people in Washington, D.C. that forced the automobile makers to put FM on the radio dials in automobiles. I mean, you, you think, you know, and that, that, that truly is a long time ago now. But to have FM make that growth and your talk about people not only listened to the radio, they were loyal to the radio. It yes. was almost like a sports loyalty, you know, where you're a BYU fan or you're a U of U fan, you're a Broncos fan or you're a Raiders fan, or maybe you like Johnny Uintas and somebody else. <laughs> you know? But, but it, it was like that. Everybody. I mean, the yeah. Beach Boys used to sing about it. And the number one radio station makes the town really swing now. And then you could hear them in the background. This was the song Salt Lake City. And it said, Kanak. They they whispered Kanak. And, and it was true. I mean, people had their favorite radio stations. And it, it was a golden time. I remember that time well. And not only your favorite radio stations, but your favorite radio personalities. Right. And, and even if they weren't on a ton, you could pick up that, that personality. And that's just oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, so, around the country, you know, whether it was the real Don Steele or Wolfman Jack or <laughs> here in, in Salt Lake, it would have been Lynn Lehman or Skinny Johnny Mitchell. And What did you start doing at KSL? You know, I was I was hired away and it was a hard decision, believe it or not. That's one of those decisions that you go, oh, my goodness, what would have happened if I had said no to KSL? And uh, it, it would have been a different world for me. It truly would have. Uh, not the least of which, when I went to work for KSL, boy, my grandmother, I mean, really finally thought I'd made it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as if graduating from high school wasn't. When I went to work for KSL, that was a big deal. But I, they, they offered the position of being the production director. In other words, you work on the commercials and promos. But the other thing is that I would fill in for everybody. And the the joke at the station at that time was I was on the air more than anybody because these really established personalities, you know, Danny Kramer, Mark Van Wagner, all of these people, they had full five weeks of or four weeks of vacation time. And and it was 24 hours a day. And so I was always on the air for somebody. When do you feel like you really came into your own on KSL? When did you become the Doug Wright that we know? Uh, Probably the late 80s or the early 90s. I, I started doing the radio show I, I when I semi-retired several years ago, three years ago. Uh, I joked that I was the longest temporary employee on the air that KSL had ever had because <laughs> they asked me 
if if I would just fill in because they did a little scramble. We, they had a major personality who went over to our competitor, Call Radio at the time, mm-hmm. and they moved some people around. And so they had an opening in the midday, in the morning, nine till noon. And they said, Doug, until we can figure this out, would, would you just do it? So the day after Labor Day of 19, uh, what was it, 87, I think. No, 85, pardon me, 85. I, uh, I started doing a temporary radio show that lasted until, uh, you know, 40 years later. So personal life-wise, because we've, we've kind of run through the career a little bit, yeah. uh, I believe at some point you got married, started having a family. Yeah, I, I was, uh, <laughs> especially by uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint standards, I was a, a problem child there too because I was not married. Uh, I, I did not go on an LDS mission. I, I was not married. Do you remember we used to have, there were spe- uh, young adults and then there was special interest. I was a special <laughs> interest, which seems to be my my M.O. So if, if you weren't married by the time you were 27, there was something, you know, we, we, we got to talk, you know, and it was, you know, that sounds almost ridiculous now. Oh my but, gosh. Yes. But, but it, it's true. And I didn't get married till I was 29 and I did a lot of dating and just, you know, was able to hang out with some really, really sweet girls that I, I am friends with to this day. But the magic happened at KSL when our, a human resources person, Lourdes Cook, came around and was introducing a brand new employee to everyone. I was still the production director at the time. This was 1980. I can remember the exact date. It was May th- uh, March 3rd, 1980. The door opened and Lourdes introduced me to uh, my now wife, uh, Dee. <laughs> Dee and I, this, I've, <laughs> every time I tell this story, Dee just goes, oh, geez. But it's absolutely true, and she'll back that up. You know how you're smitten? Yeah. And I, I never, you know, I mean, you, you know, all of us have been through that, where you see somebody, oh, wow, that's so cool, boy, I'd like to date her or whatever. But I was truly smitten. And I remember in the course of being introduced to Dee, I blurted this out. I was standing in, in the kind of U-shaped area of the studio with the console behind me, turntables around, tape decks and everything. Dee is standing in the door. And I looked at her and I said, I am the most eligible bachelor in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where oh, that came oh, from. Doug, that is why. fantastic. And I, I think she just took pity on me and just thought this guy's so ridiculous. <laughs> I just can't write him off. And so it wasn't uh, long thereafter that we started to date. And at the time... At the time, this is a big deal. Remember who owns KSL? Yes. Church of Jesus Christ. Church owns they KSL, yeah. The board of directors at that time, it's not quite this way now, but at that time was, I mean, there were like three or four general authorities. I mean, mm-hmm. apostles that were sitting on the board. And because we both worked for KSL, she in television, I in radio, uh, we had to get permission from the board to get married. And so we've we've joked about that. You know, hey, general authority said we could get married, but it was really the board. And they finally decided that because I worked in radio, 
almost exclusively with a little spillover in television. Yeah. And she worked exclusively in television with a little spillover into radio, but they would allow it. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, we got married in, uh, in October, October 24th. So awesome. Yeah. And you stopped being a, a menace. Everything came full circle. A menace circle. to society. You, exactly. you, had, you had graduated. You had gotten married. You had finally gotten rid of all of these things that the incorrigible you know so, dug right. And you know what's so ironic? And, you know, and, I, and uh, you know, I have plenty of faults and foibles that I do not want to talk about here. But, you know, all of the stuff that a lot of people would kind of associate with that, you know, the the... Drug, sex, and rock and roll and all that stuff. You know, with marijuana and alcohol and the drugs of the time and everything else, just zero appeal. You know, the old thing is, you know, I, I didn't inhale. I just didn't, period. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to couch my eyes or anything. I'm, I have a lot of other faults, but I'm so grateful that I, I dodged, love it. you know, all of that stuff. And, you know, that's where I think, uh, you know, my upbringing, my mom... Uh, my grandpa, more than yeah. anything. And I, I, I just dodged a whole lot of bullets when I was younger. And many people would have probably, you know, kind of, yeah, well, you know, he's in rock and roll and, yeah, you know, he's not married yet. And, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you know, and all that. And all of the normal suspect things, I, I can plead not guilty. So as Notice I'm not talking about what I could be guilty of. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about what you're not. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. it. I focus on the not. What yeah. If, yeah. I love it. Um, so you you guys are raising a family. How many children do you have? Uh, we have three, two of, uh, of which are alive today. How difficult was it? Like, I know that when, with my job, I'm out of town a lot. It's really hard. I miss a baseball game or I miss, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. But you can't exactly just sneak off the air to go catch a, a school play or anything like that. Yeah, you know, if <laughs> I used to joke about it, if if you're if you're late and you do what I do, everybody in the state of the Intermountain West knows. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you cannot be late. Uh, you you cannot not show up. We have kind of a little family slogan: the rights show up. We may oh, not want to. Awesome. We we may you know have to, but. We show up, and and I, I really tried, but there there were times when I just couldn't. I had a lot of assignments on weekends, you know. For so many years, uh, BYU has pretty much taken many of the BYU coverage responsibilities, including Greg and other who are now BYU employees. Sure, but that was all opposite back in the day. We mm. sold all the advertising. We went down to the pregame stuff. If there was something at halftime, like the, the quarterback challenge or something, we hosted that. And so a lot of my Saturdays and then radio remotes, you know, yeah. we, we still do a lot of remotes, but boy, back then, I mean, there were some holiday weekends where I'd do a remote on Saturday. I'd do a remote on Friday afternoon and I'd do a remote on, on Monday. If it was a, like a labor day or, yeah. or something like that. So you can't hit everything, but Dee and I, you know, we, we really tried and, and Dee was just amazing. Uh, you know, at, at a certain point, uh, she, uh, decided that she would, uh, uh, continue working, but not on a daily basis. Mm. She did a lot of talent work. She did a lot of writing and so on, but she was able to really take the, the lion's share of the day-to-day -day operation of the family and the kids and, 
So, so I want to go back to this 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 whole career now, the body of your time at KSL. <laughs> yeah, and I want to ask about just maybe what are some really memorable experience you had, either people who you got to meet or interview. Yeah. I'll I'll go right back to the very beginning. I had just barely started at KSL. Uh, the date was June 1st of 1978. And I can remember walking through those doors and, oh my goodness, you know, there's a big picture of the, you know, first presidency on this wall, all of these prestigious, you know, radio awards and, oh my goodness, you know, to walk through as an employee just blew me away. So I was, I was quite intimidated. And very shortly thereafter, uh, they asked me if I would fill in for Bob Lee, who was doing one of the midday shows at the time. And I was as nervous as could be, you know, running the board and trying not to make an idiot of myself. And I remember a hubbub started in the newsroom that was just insane. I mean, you know, it, it's kind of fun to watch the news unfold that way. You can just feel it in the air. But this was, there was something different here. Phil Mueller was our news director at the time. And all of a sudden, I started hearing rumblings that the blacks had received the priesthood. I was on the air. I was so nervous just on what I was doing, trying to not have dead air, trying not to make an egregious mistake. And, you know, fortunately, the news department kind of takes over at that point. And, you know, all of the special reports, CBS broke in with a special, you know, and we were a CBS affiliate at the time. But being on the air when that announcement was made for the very first time, carrying the local information, carrying the CBS radio network, you know, headlining that, that was, that was an amazing thing. And I, I was really glad, you know, when I taught a Sunday school class, when I was probably in my early 20s, and the kids that I was teaching at the time, they were like 16, 17, maybe a couple of 15-year-olds. So they were still in high school, and I <laughs> I was much closer to getting out of high school, too, but uh, <laughs> shouldn't have been. But I can remember three of the big, big issues for these kids, and honestly, it was a big issue for me. You know, just trying to understand, trying to uh, deal with, honestly, you know, the, the question of polygamy would come up, the question of women's rights. The ERA was very hot topic sure. at the time, but the number one thing, uh, blacks in the priesthood. And that was one of the happiest days of my life. And, you know, the fact that I was on the air at the time was just nerve wracking, but that, that was an amazing moment. And, and there've been a lot of amazing moments. Yeah. Uh, when did the Doug Wright Show become the Doug Wright Show? Well, I started calling it because, you know, I, I thought I was just temporary. Uh, and Saturday Night Live, remember, they had the not ready for prime time. <laughs> sure. I, I called it uh, Doug Wright here on KSL, the not ready for drive time show. <laughs> and and I did that for quite a while because I, I just figured I'd be replaced at, at any minute. And it, you know, went into months, and then it went into a half a year. And then, you know, after a year, I thought, well, I guess I better start acting like this is really my show. And kind of went from there. And, you know, it, it before I ever did the, the, the Doug Wright show, as the first time they ordered a liner for me, anybody who was in radio, there are jingles, there are liners, like, you're listening to Danny Kramer, you know, you're listening to The Real Steel. The first time I ever got a voice, you're listening to Don Wright 
on KSL News. They didn't even get my name right. You know? so, <laughs> no wonder was, I. That was just payback for Johnny Uinta. That's all that yeah, was. Probably, <laughs> no, no wonder I felt like I might be temporary. Uh, the they, Don Wright Show. Yeah, they they asked me a couple of times. Our program director at the time was George Lemich. And I remember the first time they asked me to fill in on public polls. That was our talk show. It was, and it was always the award-winning public polls. And I was, I was scared to death because they had prominent people on. And uh, so I, I was doing the, the show one night and it was a professor at BYU. And uh, he was very much for more gun control. Mm. And so he was sitting on the other side of the, of the desk from me. And I remember I asked him the question that a lot of people were asking, you know, that a gun isn't the only lethal thing. I mean, what if it was a knife? And I could tell I, I'd asked the perfect question. He was waiting for this question. Yeah. This was on our old studios on Social Hall. And I was so nervous anyway because I was hosting Public Pulse. This is the show that Wes Bowen used to do. This, you know, <laughs> notable, not just little, you know, Doug Wright. So he said, well, if I had a knife, I would have to, and he like reached in his pocket. He said, I'd have to have the knife reach over, lunge at you. But if I had a gun, reaches in his suit jacket pocket, pulls out a gun and shoots it at me. Bam. You know, for anybody who's ever been on the air or you have better, uh, you know, sound equipment, the VU meters just slammed. And I was so caught off guard that I just, you know, I realized that I, I was still intact. <laughs> and so I just kind of nervous chuckle. And he had used a starter pistol. You are kidding. And I'm not kidding you. The station went nuts. Doug Miller, who was the uh, news director at the time, happened to be in the building, called the program director. Oh, my goodness. That made the front page of uh, a publication called Radio and Records at the time. It was kind of the, the gospel for you know radio. There was Billboard for Music, but Radio and Records. And yeah, that was a front page story. I'll, I'll never forget that one. And, and it's a good thing that... You know, I was so focused on the show because it was one of those things, if you thought about it, you'd go, are you kidding me? You know, it was crazy. <laughs> Doc, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I mentioned earlier, I mentioned 9-11. And the reason I mentioned 9-11 is because not only was it a turning point in America, people look to someone like you. I mean, there's a relationship of trust. I have it with you, Doug. Like when, when you speak, I go to you to hear what I'm supposed to think or to give me context. <laughs> Uh -oh. talk, talk about a, a, an experience like how do you go on air knowing that Utah is ready to hear yeah. what, what, what is happening here, Doug? And by the way, that's not just for average listeners. When I was at KCPX, I can remember when the, the Teton Dam broke. I remember when there was this big power outage. Mm. All of us at KCPX, guess where we tuned? KSL. That was the voice and it, it's an awesome responsibility. And the only thing you can do is just let your hair down and just be real and just talk and just realize that you're talking to friends. Uh, somebody, when I first started working at KSL, said, you know, we are the biggest small town radio station in the world. <laughs> and we, we just need to reach out to people. And if it's Christmas Eve, talk to them as if you're your family. And and I, I, I remember that on 9-11. You know, I'll tell you exactly. I, I can remember everything that happened that day. 
I was extremely nervous because I was giving a, a speech. Uh, Ralph Becker, who later became the mayor of Salt Lake City, but uh, he was the minority leader on Utah's Capitol Hill, and he had asked me if I would speak to the Democratic Caucus at the Alta Club on the morning of 9-11. And mm. I, I said, and Ralph and I have had a great relationship, I said, you do know I'm a Republican. And he said, yeah, but you're one of the good Republicans. <laughs> I said, well, you're one of the good Democrats. So I said yes, and I remember I was driving down, and I was really nervous, and all of a sudden, airplanes are, are hitting one of the towers. Just as I went in, a second airplane had hit, which just eliminated any doubt. This was not an accident. And I went in, and I can remember everybody, uh, you know, all of these legislators, and we just went, well, should we go ahead? And I was kind of secretly hoping that they would say no. But they said, no, let's, let's go ahead. We don't know what's going on. I remember we had a moment of, of silence, you know, just in, in prayer, but silent prayer. And so I gave the speech, and I, I went out and got in my truck, parked on Social Hall Avenue. And it was time, for, I, you know, I was a little overdue, actually, you know, being there in time for daily prep. You know, you just don't show up five seconds before you go on the air. And I can remember tuning in, and the towers were just coming down the first tower. And I raced over to the station. And of course, it was just full bore. And from that time in the morning, early in the morning before my show would have started until eight o'clock that night, you just go, you just go in, in survival mode and you go in, this is what I'm supposed to do mode. And it was, it, it was hard, but yet it was so full of adrenaline and it was so full of necessity and things were just breaking all around you. And so we were all on the air. I mean, everybody, you know, Grant and Amanda at that time, myself and others, we were all on the air just straight through. But at eight o'clock that night, uh, President Hinckley, there was, there was a, a business group that was in town that were going to be entertained in the tabernacle by a, sh a short concert from the tabernacle choir. And President Hinckley uh, just turned it all inside out and said, let's make this, let's go ahead with it. Let's entertain our guests who are planning on this anyway, but it's going to be something totally different in acknowledgement of the day. And so at eight o'clock, uh, we switched and went to the Tabernacle Choir and the special presentation from the Tabernacle. That's the first time all day that any of us had had a chance to even really draw a breath and really process what had happened. And we all realized that the next day was going to be crazy as well. And so uh, those of us that had been there you know, by that time, over 12 hours straight on the air, uh, we uh, were encouraged to go home. And I, I can remember exactly where I was. And I was listening to the beautiful choir uh, that we're so fortunate uh, is now kind of back. You know, they're doing limited uh, things in the LDS conference and so on. But I remember, and I love, I've always loved the choir ever since I was a little boy. My grandpa used to take me over to the uh, organ recitals. I'd meet him for lunch and, and I was on I-80 just about crossing State Street and I just burst into tears. I didn't even know if I could drive. I, I considered pulling off the freeway and I thought, now, nah, come on, get, get your act together. But that's when it hit me. That's when the magnitude of what had happened 
hit me. How many people had died? What an affront this was to decency in our, in our nation, in our world. The, the, the pouring in of goodwill from our, our neighbors and, you know, from our allies and neighbors, meaning everybody in the world that had any streak of decency in them at all. And it just hit me like a wave. You know, as far as being on the air, and I've broadcast some really tough stuff, and we've had some really tough programs and some real hard moments. But that, for me, that it would have been, for my parents, it would have been, you know, waking up on a Sunday morning and hearing about, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Right. And that was what that was. I, I still think about it. I've listened to you for hundreds of hours, you know, as, <laughs> as so many people have. And you have talked to thousands of people over the years to make it clear what your show very much was, at least from my perception. And you can correct me if you see it differently, but you sort of would introduce a topic. You'd give some context around it and then you'd open up and you are, have that amazing balance between talking and listening. And you would take your callers and the callers are a huge part of your show. And you'd almost play referee sometimes, you know, yeah, uh, between yeah. your guest and the, the callers and the listeners and count points and counterpoints. Doing that all of these years, what did you learn about people and about humanity? You know, Will Rogers said that he had never met a person that he didn't like. And I can't maybe quite say that, but I know the spirit of what he was saying. And, you know, most people really do. They're... they're they really do have a voice and something that should be heard. Mm. And, and it's amazing if you'll let people speak and if you don't interrupt them every second. And if you, even, even if you disagreed, let, let them say their piece. And there's uh, something that I came to really appreciate and it's, and it's the power of silence. You know, somebody, I, I, I can remember several times specifically, I, w I won't mention them here, we don't have time, but I can remember somebody would say something and I'd just sit there and it would almost be uncomfortable. <laughs> and then they would continue on and what they said was, if not fascinating or entertaining or profound, uh, they're, they're, people have something to say, they really do. And yeah, you know, I used to say this on the air all the time because I, I, I've seen it, especially over the last 20 years or so, where people have hardened themselves into a corner. They, they have discovered that they can cherry pick who will reinforce what they already believe. A term that I heard once was, you know, don't be an echo, be a voice. Mm. And there are so many echoes in our society today, people that are just repeating what their favorite or loudest pundit had to say. You can cocoon yourself in, in what you read, what you hear, what you see with people that will only echo your thoughts or whatever it might be. And I remember I told somebody once, and, and I then mentioned it often on the air, the person that doesn't ever change their mind really concerns me <laughs> because one of two things is, is happening. Either they are to the point where they could literally walk on water or they just have closed their mind. Billy Graham 
once said, if any two people are saying the same thing all the time, only one of them is doing the thinking. <laughs> and I really believe that to be that true. That is profound, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And no. So that, you know, I, and I, it's getting worse. It really is. And you'd be yeah. surprised how many people you listen to on the air, how many pundits, that uh, they are just going on the talking points. They are reading the tea leaves. They are putting their finger in the wind. They are listening to the focus groups. And, you know, there, there's a tragic formula where you will look for what people are afraid of. Then you will reinforce their fear and say, but it's really worse than you think. Then you will dish out all kinds of simplistic answers that you represent to be your own original thinking. Mm. And, you know, and when you stop and really analyze it, do they really make sense? And then, and here's the kicker, and despots have done this since the beginning of time. What's their fear? Reinforce their fear, and it's worse than you think. And here are the simplistic answers, and here's the person to blame. Mm-hmm. Here's who's at fault. Those nasty Democrats. Those nasty Republicans. Those immigrants. Those people who are gay. Those people who are... You know, oh, I hear that. And I just want to weep. And, and I'm hearing it far too much, often lately. And it, it concerns me. But there are a lot of people who program their radio programs and their commentary programs on the wind in the air of the day and what the latest focus group has said. And I actually had a consultant tell me this once. He said, Doug, I still can't believe it when I repeat it. You make people look up, keep it at eye level, go for the low-hanging fruit. Don't make it hard for them. Make it easy. And I'll never forget, I thought, that's what you want me to do? You want me to go for the low? And fortunately, he wasn't a KSL employee. He was just one of those hired guns, and every business at one time or another has them. And I remember our the, the head of... Uh, the Deseret Management Company at the time, we were having dinner at a management retreat. And I told him this, and all of the other news people were sitting there, you know, Consaris, who was over TV, and uh, just all of the, the news geeks were there. And he looked around the room, and they were all nodding their head like, yeah, we've heard stuff like that too. And I looked over at him, and I said, you know, if you want me to do that, you can just shoot me. And I I will never forget, he reached out, because I was sitting right next to him to his left. He reached out with his arm. He pulled me right into him. And he said, Doug, if you ever do that, I'll shoot you. <laughs> and I thought, okay, thank you, KSL. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is so beautiful. We're going to wrap up in a minute on a much lighter note talking about the movie show. But before we get into the movie show, which is another institution here in Utah, uh, before we get in the movie show, I want to just hear about the process of being, you know, so tied to KSL for so long and the Doug Wright show. And, and again, I mean it when I say icon, how do you retire? How did that how hard was that decision, and how did you make that decision? You know, Dee and I have talked about this since we first met one another, because she has worked in radio. She was she's from Missouri, 
And she worked at a little radio station in Missouri. She worked for the Walt Disney Company, and she worked for the Osmonds back when they used to do the Donnie and Marie show. And then she worked at, at KSL. And I, I can remember very early conversations in our marriage saying there will be a time when it's the right time. And you don't want to go out with your tail between your legs. You don't want to go out. You, you want to go out while people wished you weren't. <laughs> And, and I, you know, obviously I won't mention some names, but I've seen some people stay way too long, way too long. And I, I, I just reached a point, um, where I thought, you know, uh, because I, I was 67 when I semi retired. Uh, and I thought, you know, I, I would like, to go out while people, at least some people, <laughs> my mom, still wished that I was there. And and it, it ended up being a really, really good thing because I I still do a lot of, I, I do the Sunday morning show. I, I joke with our friends at the Tabernacle Choir that I'm their warm-up act <laughs> and on Sunday edition. So I, I, I get yeah. to do that. So there's still some meatiness to it. I was a little concerned, honestly, because I don't want to only be remembered for being the goofball on the movie show. I always said that was my Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, we we had, you know, Dr. Jekyll during the week, and then we had Mr. Hyde going crazy on Friday. And uh, several people have said that's probably your alter ego coming out. I'm sure a shrink would have a heyday with it. But I, I, I've still had a lot of things to do. And plus, I... There are all kinds of things that I want to do too that require a little more time now. Mm. Beautiful, just beautiful. And so this brings us to the movie show because we're not <laughs> going to finish this interview without talking about the movie show. There's How no excuse ha- for or explanation for the movie show. <laughs> How long have you done the movie show now? Well, okay, you know, that's an interesting question because uh, when I inherited that morning show that I thought that I temporarily worked on for, you know, so many years. Um, There was a little feature in the 10 o'clock hour. It was sponsored by the Trolley Square Theaters. That shows you how long Mm -hmm. ago it was. Sure. And Chris Hicks would come over from the Deseret News. And very quickly, I mean, this was like, including the 30-second commercial, was like two and a half, maybe three minutes, where he'd, he'd talk about here are the new movies that are coming out. This is a pretty good one. Hey, this is a pretty good one. Watch out for this one. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that was it. And then we play the Trolley Square, you know, commercial. And that was it. Well, when I uh, temporarily took over that show, Chris and I just really hit it off. And I, I genuinely, my father, it, I kind of became a little reacquainted with my father when I was just a little kid, you know, like 11, 12 years old. But he was a projectionist at the Woodland and the Parkview Drive-In. So I could run the projectors and the whole thing. And I was, I was really into, uh, into movies. And Chris could sense that. And he, of course, I used to call him the, uh, the, the uh, uh, <laughs> movie guru and the, the, the movie oracle. And we just hit it off. And all of a sudden, instead of being two minutes, it was five minutes. And then it was seven minutes. And then it was <laughs> ten minutes. And then it was... And I kept expecting... I always joke about the big hairy hand coming right down and flop, you know, and putting an end to that. Never happened. And pretty soon we're doing almost a half hour. And we're playing some sound clips and everything. And and pretty soon the station started selling it. For those familiar with 
you know, old time literature, Uncle Tom's Cabin, it grew like Topsy. There was no <laughs> rhyme or reason to it. Just this little weird kid character show that just was rolling through the weeds. And pretty soon it was an hour, then it was two hours, and now it's three hours. And uh, it's, it's, it's been a real kick. It's been a lot of fun. It is such a fun experience. And one of my favorite things about it is that it is not a radio show. It is some people hanging out, yeah. laughing, having yeah. a good time, cracking jokes, and just and you let the audience feel like we are all a part of it. Do you have a favorite movie after you all know, these if, years? If, if if I had to just absolutely say it's like saying what your favorite child is, but I am I'm such a fan of Robert Redford. You know, there there are times that he and I have mm. disagreed politically, but I I think Redford is is really quite amazing, and I, I had the chance to interview him once with uh, with Chris Hicks up at Sundance, mm. and we we just sat around for uh, about an hour talking with him. It was a TV special and everything, and I told him, I said, you know, Mr. Redford, one of your movies that I really really like, and I like them all almost. But I said, Jeremiah Johnson. Mm, yeah. And he said, oh, and then he just lit up and he told me the backstory, how Warner Brothers was worried about it, didn't know it, it sat on the shelf for a while and everything. I can remember where I saw that movie. It was on Christmas Day at the Villa Theater. And uh, I, I really like Jeremiah Johnson. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I love that movie. And our younger listeners probably don't even know it's a, a movie, but it is a famous internet gif now. It is. Where they do a slow close-up on Redford's face and he kind of nods and smiles. Yeah. That is Jeremiah Johnson. Great, yeah, and the movie, great and movie. The music score in that is magnificent. Mm. And yeah. the scenery in Utah. And then, you know, a lot of his movies are that way too. The Electric Horseman. And I mean, you yeah. know. There's yeah, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is in my top 10 favorite yeah, films too. of all time. So. Me too. You can always tell when you loved a movie because you remember who you were with, when you saw it, and where you saw it. Right. I, by the way, right. I saw that at the Ritz Theater with Shauna, and it was 1969. <laughs> <laughs> that is just awesome. Uh, and then last last question about the movie show, and then we'll get to the question we ask all of our guests. And that is, has there ever been a movie that you – absolutely pilloried just destroyed yeah. do you remember a movie that you could not say enough bad about <laughs> yep you know it, it's it's funny because i'm the only one and we we lovingly refer to ourselves there is a Utah film critics association of which i'm a member but we call ourselves the cadre of critics and uh, <laughs> i'm the only guy that'll walk out of a movie and oh geez i, I some of them i just go first of all, this is soul-sucking. There is nothing redeeming here. This is two hours of my life I am never going to get back. <laughs> and I, I can remember one movie uh, that I walked out of, and even the name of the movie is is obscene. And But, you know, you never I've gone into movies I thought were going to be terrible, and they, they were really quite, you know, they're, they're okay. But this one, and I won't even tell you the, the title, but I, I, I can't remember. Sean Means actually wrote it in his article in the Tribune. He said, you know, we endured this movie. He, he, and he said, and he said, Doug Wright walked out at, and it was like 
13 minutes and 25 <laughs> seconds or something. And then afterwards he said, Godspeed, Doug Wright. <laughs> oh, and I've, I've walked out of, you know, several movies over the years. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Doug, this has been so amazing. And personally, it's been a big treat for me uh, just to be able to, because again, this is not the first time we've talked, but you've talked to half of Utah. There have been times where I've, I've been driving along and listening to you and thinking, yeah, I don't, I'm not that dialed in on this issue. And then somebody else calls in and makes a point. Like, oh, for crying out loud, I have got to call. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and, you know, and, and it's always been <clears throat> such just such a wonderful experience. So thank you for all your years of uh, informing us and entertaining us. And what a blessed life you've had. Oh, we are, we're going to wrap up with the question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, uh, Doug Wright, what does being a member of the church mean to you? You know, Mitt Romney said something when he was running for president that I've never forgotten because, you know, his membership in the church, especially his first run in 2008, was somewhat uh, controversial. And some of the reception he got from some of our good Christian friends was not what I would have expected. But And, and not so much in 2012. But I remember Mitt Romney, after he explained different things and talked about certain elements of, of the religion, he said, and plus, it's the faith of my fathers. And I thought, oh my goodness, doesn't that say so much? Uh, it, it is the faith of my fathers. And I, I, I often ask myself, uh, what if over in Scotland, uh, two missionaries had knocked on my door and it was my great-great-grandfather, David Love, and somehow you say yes. Somehow you pack up your whole family. Somehow you come to America. You end up in St. Joe. You lose your wife on the way over. This young woman on the ship helps you with the children you have. And you end up marrying her, Margaret Hunter. And then you cross the plains and come into Utah in 1852. I go, would I have done that? And the same thing with the Wilding family. And then on my dad's side, the same thing with the Wrights and with the Dutsons. And then my grandmother's family that came over in the 1890s in steerage on a ship after leaving their home in Switzerland. It's the faith of my fathers. Uh, it, it, it resonates uh, with me in my core. I will tell you very frankly, I'm a practical Mormon. I really am. I shouldn't use that word. I am a practical member of the Church of Jesus <laughs> Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I appreciate its practical side. I appreciate the camaraderie. I appreciate the structure. I appreciate the support. I appreciate the roots. I appreciate the heritage. I appreciate knowing that other people are working so hard, though imperfectly at times, to make this a better world, to make the church more inclusive, which I have been so grateful for in my lifetime. And it's, it's an anchor. The church is an anchor. And I, uh, I'm grateful for it. And I'm also extremely grateful for the wonderful people that are not members of our church. And I suspect that many of them will be way ahead of me in the line 
getting a bigger smile from St. Peter than I will. <laughs> he is a husband, a father, and for many, many years, he was the voice of Utah on KSL Radio, and you can still find him on the movie show and in various <laughs> other ways. I don't think we're going to lose uh, seeing you anytime soon, but Doug Wright, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Oh, this has been a joy. Thank you. And my special thanks to Doug Wright. What a blessing it was to get to sit down and hear his story. I absolutely loved him before, and I love him even more now. What a blessing. Thank you so much, Doug. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life, I had an interesting experience right before I got sick. um, I like to, and I've shared this before, I like to walk in the mornings. I go for kind of long walks, you know, a few miles. And I listen to scriptures, I listen to conference talks, sometimes I listen to podcasts or uh, audiobooks, and I just love it. And uh, especially listening to the Book of Mormon, it's part of my thing. I enjoy listening more than I enjoy reading. I find that I get more out of it by listening to it. And this past week, I was in Jacob 5, and Jacob 5 is a pretty long chapter. It's 77 verses, and it's the allegory of the tame and wild olive trees. And I, of course, I know that's the likeness of Israel and the Gentiles, and it's talking about the good fruit and the bad fruit and the grafting, and certain branches need to be uh, thrown in the fire. And then, of course, there's the, the master, and it's all the grafting that goes on and then that eventually the vineyard will will be burned. And as I was out for my walk, I was down by the Provo River, beautiful area. I really focused in and I thought, okay, I'm, and I've shared this before, you all know this, I'm not a great scriptorian. It's just not how I'm built. I'm not smart enough to just understand the scriptures like some of my friends. But I really wanted to understand this chapter. And as I was listening, I kept getting lost. And it would talk about, okay, and then this particular uh, vine needed to be pruned. And I went, wait a minute, who was that vine? And I'd go back and I'd listen again. And then the master of the vineyard would say, then you need to do this. Or the Lord of the vineyard would say, you have to do that. And and I'd go, wait, what? What, what, Is that? No, that's the Gentile. No, wait a minute, that must be Israel. And man, it was frustrating. And if I'm being honest, I got so caught up in it. And I've shared before, I have a pretty strong ADD. And I'd realized that my mind was wandering and I'd have to go back and listen again and again. And it was so long. And by the end of it, I was kind of kicking myself going, you know, why this is in the Book of Mormon. It must be important. Why can I not understand it? And as I was really getting down on myself for not fully understanding what all of this meant, suddenly the Spirit came over me and really comforted me. And I had an incredible spiritual experience testifying to me that I had missed the point, that the point wasn't to understand every little part of this, but the point was to generally understand God, to strengthen my understanding of God and of His work, to strengthen my understanding of the Savior and of this world. And that happened that day. But also to go through these things, even if I don't understand every part of it, how much value there is in the Book of Mormon. It is an amazing book, 
and I definitely walked away with some greater understanding, but what I really walked away with was an understanding of just how important it is that I keep listening or reading and studying, that I stay on it, that I don't let go of how important the Book of Mormon is just because I struggle with one chapter. And then as I was watching conference, I was so grateful for the messages of strength, especially for all the messages that were saying, hey, just keep trying, just keep going, keep at it. And that is such a blessing. And as I've moved forward each day in my studies, I'm now into parts where I'm more comfortable. But I know other friends who are very comfortable with the vineyard and with uh, Isaiah and with so many of those other parts I struggle with who they have a harder time really understanding the stories of the Book of Mormon, which is where I kind of come alive. There's something in it for all of us. But the important thing is that we show our devotion, that we respect this incredible book and the entirety of the gospel, and that we keep studying. And one day we will understand. And that is the entire message of the gospel. And I'm really grateful for that morning. Every once in a while, a wrestle with the gospel can be a pretty good thing. And I'm just so grateful for that. Grateful for the Book of Mormon. What an incredible book it is. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. Again, if you know anybody who would enjoy these uh, stories, these life stories of incredible saints, if you would share it with them, our numbers are really growing. And it's thanks to all of you sharing our show. We really appreciate it. Uh, the Latter-day Lives podcast was produced by Gene Chittister, social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier, and I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening.